you need to borrow one of ours, stick your hand up and what in the world is on your shirt, John? <laughs> yeah, don't be intimidated by the shirt. Just take the Bible. And then there's some more normally dressed individuals on this side. <laughs> oh, I love that the body of Christ is filled with normal people and nutballs all can, like in one place. Isn't it? That means that I have a place to be. Um, we are done with our Ephesians series. And so uh, we get to move on to some other sections of Scripture this morning. And as Jesse pointed out to you last week, we're going to be starting uh, what we call an Advent series. Uh, if you are one of the people that grew up in like a Roman Catholic background or whatever, I don't mean to send shutters down your spine. We're not going to do any like super duper formal things or anything. But Advent is just a time in which we celebrate Jesus appearing or his coming. That's what Advent means. I grew up, or at least for a while, my family was a part of a church that actually had like an Advent wreath that had candles in it, and they would light like one candle a week. Anybody do that at all? Anybody know what I'm talking about? A couple of nods, a couple of, maybe just wave, wave at me. Well, okay. So, oh, so a bunch of you. Yeah. Okay, great. I don't know why we don't do that here. Like we're, if we're going to burn down the church, we want to all do it together on a candlelight service. Did he, did Brad announce those? Did he? No, Brad, he was so excited to talk about Tim and Dan, which are really exciting to talk about. I'll, I'll do that announcement real quick. So Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday this year. And so we tried to figure out what are we going to do about this because we want to have Christmas Eve services and we want to have Sunday morning services. So we're going to have one at 1030, one at 5, one at 7. And they're essentially, with some minor variations, they're essentially going to be the same service. They are candlelight services. So instead of just me lighting one Advent candle today, you can put on your calendar to come for the Christmas Eve services and you will get your own candle and then the whole room will be filled with flame. Okay? So please feel free. Uh, feel... Uh, plan on joining us, plan on inviting people. That's uh, a, a great time for people to come. Uh, it's the time that most people, f like, that don't want to go to church the rest of the year, that's the time they're most likely to say yes. So exploit the heck out of that and <laughs> just bring them on in with you. Okay. Uh, so anyway, back to our Advent series. Each of those candles typically stands for something. There's a hope candle, a peace candle, a joy candle, and a love candle. And you are supposed to talk about each of those ideas in each of the weeks of Advent. So this week, though it's going to be hard to talk about just one of those without referencing the others, I have been assigned to talk to you about hope. Hope is our goal, to talk about it. Go ahead and open up to Hebrews Chapter 6, this Bible has been well-loved. And stick your finger there. We're going we're gonna to use the Bible a little bit differently than I, um, than I normally will do. We're, we're, uh, we're going to look at a lot of passages today, such as the nature of a topical message when somebody just says, speak about hope. <clears throat> stick your finger in there and imagine this with me. It is the year 1990. It is December, and I am 10 years old. Now, I know you're doing the math right now, trying to figure out why I look so good at this age. But I assure you, this is the truth. It is December, 1990. It is Christmas time, and, but it's Christmas in Los Angeles. So the weather is still the same as it was the rest of the year. Uh, I was raised in Los Angeles with my father, who was a school teacher, and my mother, who was a bookkeeper, which... I don't even think that's like a word anymore now that we've got QuickBooks to like do what my mom did. But needless to say, we didn't make a ton of money. Like we lived in the suburb of LA, which meant that I was allowed to go onto my street to play, but I couldn't leave outside of my street to play because it's Los Angeles in the 90s, which was a special time. We got the, the we called it the ghetto bird, like flying over our backyard. That's a helicopter for the uninitiated, you know, with the LAPD saying, stay in your homes, that type of thing. That was a regular sight, but I just thought that was normal life. That's, that's the way I was raised. And, and so all of that to say, when you're that age, when you're 10, you don't necessarily have a full grasp of, how, of where your parents are at financially. But one thing I did know, I knew 
that Christmas was the time that I could expect to receive something that I wouldn't get the rest of the year. Right? The rest of the year, I might get food, clothing, and shelter, and maybe a trinket here or there, but Christmas was the time when I would get something special. And so my parents would do this thing that maybe, maybe your parents or you're familiar with this. Uh, my parents would do this thing where they would give me multiple gifts, but they would get increasingly interesting. You know, like they'd, they'd do like a lame gift and then like a moderate gift and then like a good gift, right? Did anybody's parents do that? Wave at me again. Okay, so a bunch of weirdos in the room. This is a safe place to be. <clears throat> so... This Christmas, my parents first, uh, we start with the lame gift, right? And I had done my reconnaissance. Like, we have responsibilities. We have to check underneath the tree to see what's there, what we can expect. My parents give me the first gift, right? Open it up. It's a church shirt. Yay! You know, my parents have to buy me a new church shirt because I've destroyed it all year long. And it's not exciting. It's a thank you, you know, put it to the side, right? That's just gift one. Got to get it out of the way. Gift two, open it up. And it's these little plastic cars. And I want you to envision this because when I say plastic cars, I don't mean like fancy plastic cars. I mean like, you know when you go to the dentist office and open that treasure chest after you've been a good little boy or girl and you get that like bottom of the barrel plastic car? These were like one step above that in that, that remember that sticky hand stuff? These had that on the bottom so it could kind of like stick and roll down a wall progressively okay, like, thanks, but we're moving on, right? That's only gift two. I put gift two aside. I wait my turn. Here comes gift three. I'm excited about this. I open up gift three, and it's a pack of markers. Now, I dabbled in the arts as a child, but getting school supplies for Christmas... Is not very exciting. And I knew that there was nothing left under the tree, which told me that the culmination gift was a pack of lousy markers. And I did what most 10 year olds do when they realize that their hope has been dashed, and I threw a hissy fit. Now, I threw a hissy fit like a firstborn child throws a hissy fit, not like a baby throws a hissy fit or like the, you know, the youngest. You know how we all have our different personalities? I, I threw it like a firstborn child, but I certainly had this like stankiness to my personality. I was not saying thankful. I'm not saying thank you for the markers. I'm starting to kind of like stamp around and fold my, like I can't believe that this is the way Christmas is. It got so bad that my parents said, go to your room on Christmas morning of all places. Go to your room on Christmas morning. Now, as a 10-year-old, I felt like I was in that room by myself for probably an hour. It might have been like 12 minutes, but it felt like an hour. And my parents then came in to me to tell me about how ungrateful of a child I was. Now, looking back, they were 100% right. 100%. I'm complaining about being given three gifts, right? I mean, there are people in this world who are wondering whether or not they're going to survive living through Christmas Day this year. And I'm complaining because I got markers, a shirt, and some cars that roll down a wall. Now, even though it kind of wrecks my message, I don't want my parents to look bad because occasionally they show up here. So I'll tell you that what they were actually doing was trying to trick me, and it worked. (laughs) Because they said, even though you are ungrateful, we are still going to give this to you. And they handed me another shirt box. Fantastic. Pants to match the shirt. (laughs) And I open it up, and inside is a Nintendo Game Boy. As you know, I can tell you know, this is the culminating present. This is the pinnacle of all gifts to a 10-year-old boy in 1990. Here's the thing, though. For a short period of that Christmas morning, I lost my hope that Christmas was something special. Now, my hope was that Christmas was a time when I would get something that I would never receive any other time of the year, but my hope of Christmas was in Christmas gifts. 
You see, oftentimes we don't realize how much hope does for us until we've lost it. Because hope often acts for us as an anchor. Now you guys know how I like to speak. I like to physically bring in things that will like emblazon in your mind what the point was. I thought about bringing in a giant anchor. I didn't know where I could get a giant anchor, let alone like how I could lift a giant anchor. So you have a picture of a giant anchor. But nonetheless, an anchor is a giant metal object that is used to ensure that a ship that's supposed to stay its place, even in the midst of the ocean being the crazy beast that it is, that anchor keeps that ship from sailing away out of control and crashing somewhere. Hope is an anchor. Now, I've had you wave a lot. I'm going to have you wave one more time. I want you to wave a little bit of an extended period of time if this applies to you. Wave at me if you have in your life ever faced anything hard. Just keep waving. While you're waving, look around the room. You notice how many other people are waving? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Here's what we just learned. No one in this room thinks that life always will go well. That at some point in your life, if not more than just one point, your life will start to come unraveled. And when life deals us circumstances in which we come unraveled, we find out what our anchoring hope is. The anchoring hope of your life is probably best found out by you in your own heart when you finish the following sentence. As long as blank, things will be okay. As long as blank, things will be okay. I want you to think about what you would put on that line. I was thinking about people outside this building, people that aren't interested in Jesus. How would they fill that line in Truckee? As long as I can still ski things are going to be okay, right? Or insert whatever the fun time is, mountain bike, hike, walk my dog. As long as my dog still likes me, things are okay. But some people would answer a little bit deeper. Like, uh, as long as I've still got a job, as long as I've still got money coming in, I'll be okay. Some people would probably push it even deeper. As long as my kids are okay, everything will be okay. As long as my wife or my husband still love me, as long as my parents still love me, it'll be okay. Maybe even people would say things like, as long as I'm still healthy, everything else is okay. Here's the problem. Remember as you looked around the room? The problem is that none of these things is guaranteed, is it? Everyone in this room knows someone, or maybe you are that someone, who has lost one or more of those things. And you know what it feels like to suddenly feel like things are not okay. We need a hope that is a greater anchor than what the world can give us. Now, the writer of Hebrews recognized this and mentions this in the letter that he writes in Hebrews chapter 6. And we're not going to study this text, but I want to use this point as a launching point in Hebrews chapter 6. If you're not familiar with this book, the writer of Hebrews is essentially trying to make the argument that Jesus is the ultimate expression of Judaism that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Jews had always longed for. And so he gets to chapter 6, and what I want to do is just read quickly verses 17 through 20. It says this in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, thank God for that, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to a hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast, what? Anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner. Now this passage is filled with all kinds of Jewish references that we don't have time this morning for me to discuss. But what the author is trying to point out, and like I said, what I want to use as our launching pad is the indication here that our only hope that can successfully anchor us is our hope that we have in Jesus. And he is a hope that is sure and a hope that is steadfast. I want to say that word again because I didn't say it right the first time. Steadfast enunciation. You see, for the Christian, what we celebrate during the Christmas season is that Christ, who is our hope, has come. That our hope, as a result, has been realized. And, not just that it's been realized in the past, but it is being realized day to day as we continue to walk with Christ. This is why I encourage you to do this. If you get some time this week, as you're growing in your skills to study scripture on your own, because please, 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 for your own sakes, don't let this be the only time you interact with this book. God has so much more for you than what I can give you in the short time we have together. A quick, a quick study, though, that you could do that would be interesting would be to find yourself what's called a concordance. And nowadays, you could probably just do it with, via a Google search, but... I'm old school and like books. And a concordance is a book where you open it up and you look up a word to try to see how many times is this word used in scripture. If you open it up and look up the word hope, what you'll notice is that the New Testament authors discuss or reference hope 53 times just in the New Testament alone. Scripture has a lot to tell us about hope. And in as much as I would love to show you every single text and talk to you about every single aspect of hope, we simply just do not have the time to cover 53 different references. What I've done is I've swept some of them into a few categories that I want to share with you about the hope that is discussed within the New Testament. Because I want us to know our hope that anchors us when all things seem lost. Our hope is based off of a few things. This didn't work so well last service. Let's check it out. And Danny, I need you. Thank you. My, my hope is certainly not in technology, I'll tell you that much. Goodness gracious. What is it that anchors us? What is a hope that anchors us? first category of things, that God is with us. One of the most famous Christmas verses it comes out of Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, which is a quotation of Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. You've probably been around long enough that you know the answer to this question. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. That's probably something that maybe doesn't stick too much in your brain. But understand the thousands of years that came before that, God necess wasn't necessarily with his people as much as he was over his people, making commands for his people, directing them, punishing them when they did poorly, rewarding them when they did well, saving them from their enemies, making promises to them. But there wasn't a, as many conversations about God being with people. With Jesus coming, Jesus would be called Emmanuel because God would be with us. And Jesus taught, specifically within his teaching ministry, what it would look like for God to be with us. Paul summarized it in the next verse I want to show you about God being with us. It comes from Romans chapter 5. 
In Romans chapter 5, it says this. We have hope that does not put us to shame. Why? Why do we not have a hope that's going to let us down? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That the witness of God would no longer be a God giving directions from the exterior, but that God had the plan to indwell all those people who would give themselves to Jesus. That his love would be poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. You might remember from Ephesians chapter 1, that when you gave yourself to Christ that you were sealed with a Holy Spirit, that God is with you. Paul then went on to say this in Ephesians chapter 2. You, and the you in this description, by the way, it's you. Everybody take their finger like this, do it like this, just trust me. And I'm going to ask this question, who is this text talking about? Now take your finger and do this. You. You. With me too. You. Y'all. All y'all. Redeem the y'all, folks. It's an important, it's a useful word. You were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You didn't get to be a part of Israel. Most of us in this room are not Jews. You were not a part of all of the special promises that Israel got. But you also had no hope. And you were without God in the world. There is this misunderstanding that is not possible or not popular for me to bring up to people. Sometimes, though, when you study scripture, you realize that the world's ideas that are popular are not necessarily undergirded by the truth that we find in scripture. There's this idea out there that God is with everybody. This text doesn't teach that. That instead, that if you have not actually submitted to Jesus as your Lord, that God is not actually with you. But conversely and joyfully, if you have given yourself to Christ, that you are now with God, you do have hope. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. My friends, you don't come to church because this is where God is. God has been with you, follower of Christ, all week long. He's been with you wherever you've gone. He's seen your successes. He's seen your failures. He saw you driving through traffic. He saw you going to work. He saw you interacting with your kids. He saw the great stuff you did. He saw the poor stuff that you did. He was loving you all the way, and he was with you. You didn't show up to this building here to try to find him. He's been tagging along with you all week long. When you come here, we come here to be with one another. The collection of people with whom God has been. Because when we join together, there is something special about how we can support one another in our with life, with God life that we live. And we can do that with one another when we gather God's not here in any more special way than he has been with you all week long if you follow Christ. And he has drawn you near. And that gives us hope because God is with us. But God has not just been with us as a spectator. The next category I want you to see is that God is for us. Maybe you're familiar with this passage out of Romans 8, which we're going to look at in a little bit more detail in a little bit. But for now, trying to help you understand that God is for us, I want you to read Romans 8. And in verses 31 through 34, you'll see this chunk right here. If God is for us, who can be against us? I hope you've heard this, before, this line before. I've seen it like tattooed on people before. 
my friends, when I talk to Christians, a lot of the times I feel like they, they don't know that this idea is true. If God is for you, who could be against you? Who could be against you? Thank you, son. Nobody. Nobody could be against you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And I love that Paul realizes that it's not enough to talk about how Jesus died for you. It is crucial that we talk about Jesus dying for you, but that's not enough for Paul. Paul wants you to know the rest. More than that, not just that Jesus died, more than that, who was raised, which means he's alive, but more than that, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. My friends, Jesus has not been with you just as a spectator. He has also, because of his divine abilities of being in multiple places simultaneously, he has been at the right hand of the Father praying for you all week long while he's been with you. I'm glad that a couple of people are excited about that idea. Because the bottom line is, friends, I'm going to do my best as one of your pastors to pray for you, but I'm going to, like, forget your names at times. I'm going to forget what it is that you wanted me to pray. I can't even have enough conversations with everybody in this room. Look around. This is a full room today. I don't know what it is that you want me to pray for. I want to pray for you. I ain't got time for that. Like, not all of you, not all of your things meaningfully. Jesus is not as limited in his abilities as I am. And he has been praying for you and will continue to pray for you until the Father says, okay, fullness of time has come. Let's move on to the next stage. I look forward to that moment, but until then, God will be with you and he will be for you and will be praying for you. One other passage I wanted to show you in the idea of God being for you comes out of 1 Thessalonians. I wanted to show this to you because this is a parallel passage of Paul talking about the armor of God, which we had just finished in the book of Ephesians. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 9, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Think about it for a second. What does the helmet protect? Your brain, your mind, your head. Why is that worth protecting? You giggle, but I want you to think about it for a second. Ah, clue. Because that's where you do your what? You're thinking. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> that's where you do your thinking. You've got to protect the place where you do your thinking. What is it that we use to protect the way that we think our hope of salvation? And what does it look like? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what protects your thinking through this week when it doesn't seem like it because circumstances are falling to disarray around you, you can remember that God is for you. Now, I know that you might have difficulty trying to understand how that could be the case simultaneously with your, with your circumstances being such a mess because sometimes they are. And that's why I wanted to show you this third category. Flip in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 8. I would encourage you, if you have some time at some point, even if you don't have time, make some time. Fall in love with Romans chapter 8. What I want to do is point out to us is that not only is our hope based on the fact that God is with us and God is for us, but that God is actually using everything that's occurring and taking us and everything else toward glory. Now, we don't talk about this enough, which is why instead of me doing an entire message on it, what I'm just going to do is read a giant chunk of Scripture with you, stopping along the way to point out some things that I think would be important for you to see in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see, starting in verse 18, For I consider that the, what's the next word? Sufferings. So the context in which Paul is about to write what it is that he's going to write. 
is that things aren't going right. See a little wordplay there, right? With a W and the right with the R. My mama thinks I'm clever. <laughs> Paul is writing in a, in a context in which things don't go as planned when things are not going the way you would choose for you. But Paul is saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the, say the next word, glory. Now, I don't do this normally, or I don't do it often, but I'm, I'm going to be one of those like pump you up preachers that is going to try to make you say that word louder. So it's not worth comparing with the that was good, but I think we can do better. Just one more time. I think we can do it. Not worth comparing with the glory. Thank you for humoring me. The, pro- the reason why we did that is because I don't know if we spend enough time thinking about what God is doing with these circumstances. He's not making us survive them. He's bringing us to glory through them. And Paul's about to show you why and how. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Stop there for a second. Inasmuch as I do firmly believe that it is a Christian's job to take care of the environment. It is our job to care. It was part of the original mandate that God gave mankind. Take care of the earth. I know that even in the midst of that, there is no combination of right actions I can take that will fix all the problems with the environment. Do you know how I know that? Because the text has told me that creation was subjected to futility as part of the fall. I can't fix something that God decided needed to be unfixed for a while. Now, I should help take care of it mostly for what it does in me, but also because of my obedience to God. But notice that God has a plan. He did this in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the, say the next word, glory of the children of God. My friends, I do need to take care of the earth now. But one day I will receive glory, as will you if you follow Christ. And then is the time when we will firmly be able to grasp the job that we were originally given. God is taking you somewhere, Christian. And he is taking you further than you could take yourself. And as a result, The whole world, including its creation, is waiting for that moment. They're waiting for the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves. Anybody in the room identify with that? Ever groaning, waiting for the revealing of our Savior, dealing with the pains that you have to deal with? Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The reason that we groan is because we have been given the Spirit to live with us, which we've already talked about, and that gives us an indication that things will not always be this way. Instead, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and the redemption of our, say this next word for me, the redemption of our bodies. Did you notice that? That Paul is telling us that God's plan is not just to save your soul. God actually cares about your soul and your body. And his plan is to save it. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that's seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we have to wait for it with patience. Now, you may be familiar with the next chunk, but I wanted you to understand the backdrop that Paul wanted you to be thinking about when he writes the next verses that you're probably more familiar with. 
Likewise, the Spirit, remember that indwelling Spirit, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You, do you identify with that at all? When you're like, man, I want to pray. Whew, what should I pray for? Nope, that's a thing. That's a thing. That's a thing. Those are things I don't need. Make me be happy. Is that what really we want? We don't know what we want to pray for. You don't know you. You think you know you. But if you're anything like me, you know a part of you. The Spirit knows you intimately because he lives within you. And he helps us in that weakness by, look at this, the Spirit, I'm in verse 26, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Wait a minute. Does this contrast what we just said? Who did we say before was praying for us? Jesus. You're paying attention. I know it's warm in here, but Jesus, safe Sunday school answer. Any, any question, right? Who's praying for us? Jesus. Good. But this text shows us that in addition to Jesus praying for us, who else is praying for us? The Holy Spirit. Good. Don't get all theologically bunched up trying to make sense of all of this stuff. Just take it as an encouragement for the moment that two members of the Godhead take as their full-time responsibility praying for you. Yeah, woo. Yahweh, Because it's not just that God is with us. It's not just that God is for us. It's that he's actively involved in praying for the things that we don't even, we're not even smart enough to know ourselves well enough to pray for correctly. Praise God that he comes alongside us and is like, it's, it, you're so pretty, right? And prays for the things that we actually need. And he, verse 27, who searches hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit? The Father knows the Spirit's mind because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit always prays according to the will of God. It's beautiful. And we know, you're probably familiar with this verse, but now I want you to look at this verse in new light. All the stuff that you've just learned about creation, about yourself, about God's intention for glory, about what God's doing with you in the Spirit. Verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Stop there. I was talking to a coworker of mine this week. And she and I both agreed as we were talking that the majority of people believe that all things happen for a reason. Familiar with this idea? I think if you ask most people, they would say all things happen for a reason. My friends, that idea is a distortion of this text. What this text actually teaches is that God is orchestrating circumstances in such a way that he can accomplish his plans for those whom he called according to his purpose. When I was talking to my coworker, saying, so if all things happen for a reason, don't you feel like reason is something that like a person has? That like somebody would have to come up with some type of plan? And she said, yeah, I mean, and she kind of like looked sideways. She's like, I believe in God. And I was like, great, that's a good starting place. Let's talk about that more. Because what this text actually teaches is that God, this isn't what I was saying to her, this is what I'm saying to you. What this text actually teaches is that God is orchestrating all circumstances to bring about his plan for the glorification of those to whom he's called according to his purpose. If you don't believe me, keep reading. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, and I know there's going to be a bunch of $5 words in here. Don't get intimidated. Just ride with me here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also, what? Thank you for the vigor. 
My friends, it is unquestionable that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is unquestionably true. But do not forget that God's plan is not just to keep the glory for himself. His plan is to also take you along to glory. And he's doing it through incremental steps. Remember how we started in verse 19? We know that he's doing it through, what was the S word? Sufferings. Thank you. We know he's doing it in in the sufferings. But more than that, he's doing it by orchestrating, according to verse 28, all things for the good of those he's he's called according to his glorious purpose. My friends, what we celebrate with the coming of Jesus is God with us. We celebrate God for us. And we celebrate that God is also refining us and has a plan for us. I will warn you ahead of time, the following story will probably result in emotional outbursts from me. My face has already leaked significantly today and it may continue to do so because once, once you start springing along those lines, it's hard to stop the waters. But I want you to think now about the year 2009. In 2009, if you remember it, it was one of the worst times of economic crisis that, that our culture has faced. And I found myself in 2009 at 29 years old I had lost my job and been out of work for five months. I had a wife. I had a son. I had a mortgage. But I had no job. I had applied for any possible job I I could find. I would spend all day long looking for jobs. It wasn't like the culture now where just like you walk into a store and they're like, hey, thanks for buying this. You want to work here? Like... I applied for anything and everything I possibly could and could not find work. I had humans that were dependent upon me to make money for them and a bank that said, hey, we'd love to take your house from you, but we'll see what you do with it because a lot of other people are just giving them to us right now. It was a time where it was difficult for me to keep hope and I'll tell you where I lost the most of it. I have this tendency when it comes to medical problems to essentially say, let's just ride it out and see what happens. That's kind of my medical philosophy that I cling to even to this day. Not necessarily a best case scenario for preventative maintenance. But when my son suddenly developed a condition where it made him difficult made it difficult for him to breathe. I waited a day or two. Let's just see what happens because I'm not sure what else we can do. I mean, I don't have any money. I, I got time, but I don't have any money. And unfortunately, as has often been the case in our culture, medical care is for rich people. And I was not one of those people at that point. And so I waited and watched him decrease in his ability to breathe. And you don't start to realize how helpless you are as a parent until you watch your child gasp for air. And you can't give it to him. So we did the only thing that we possibly could. We lived up in this tiny little mountain community that was far from some cities and there was a medical community, like a little medical clinic that doesn't like staff a doctor, just like a nurse at it and we drove there and we met nurse I I can't remember her name but it was pronounced something like nurse doom and gloom (laughs) and nurse doom and gloom evaluated our son and the first thing that she did was instead of caring for him looked at us and said what kind of parents are you it wasn't exactly what she said but I'm sure that's what it felt like because she was looking at this gasping small boy in front of her saying, why would you wait so long? 
And she's like, we got to get him to a hospital. And she says, I'm calling an ambulance, and an ambulance is going to drive him down to a hospital. And I, I said, no, you're not. I can't pay for an ambulance. We'll, we'll drive him. We'll put him in the car. And we will we'll take him down. And for a moment, she fought us, but then realized that I wasn't going to budge. So we loaded him up in the car, and, and she said, you have to, here's my personal cell phone number. You have to call me the moment that you get there because I want to make sure that your son is alive. That was him making the noise, so he's alive. <laughs> but in the moment, I didn't know what was happening. And of course, of all things, it was raining that day. So here I am driving through the rain and I'm going probably faster than I should because I know I'm supposed to basically be an ambulance at this time. And my wife is sitting in the back trying to make sure that she's monitoring my son's breathing. And I'm sitting there going, I have done everything I'm supposed to do. Why am I in this circumstance? And I finally in my, have you ever just screamed in your brain before? screamed in my brain, God, how could you? Where are you? And God spoke to me. He didn't have to. It wasn't his responsibility to do so. But as I screamed out, God, where are you? God responded, I'm right here. And that was it. No explanation of circumstances. No, I'm going to fix this. No, I'm going to work everything out and you don't need to worry about it. Nothing other than I'm here with you. I'm here. When we search for hope, there is nothing in this world that can give you hope beyond the fact that God is with you. God was with me in that moment. God was orchestrating things for me. God was taking me somewhere by working all of these circumstances together in such a way that he could work those circumstances also for my son and for my wife and for me and for probably also Dr. Doom and Gloom all of those circumstances needed to work together for his plans. And I can tell you now, not because I know that things are going to get easier or always stay easy, but I can tell you now that if you try to find your hope to anchor you in anything other than the fact that God is with you and for you and is, has a plan for what he's doing with you, your hope will crumble. But friends, in Christ, we don't have that kind of hope. Because God is for us. Who can stand against us? And this is hope that anchors our soul. This is hope that is worth celebrating. And so we're going to do two acts of celebration this morning. As you've noticed as it being already our first week of the month, what we typically will do is we'll take communion. So I'm going to invite the band to come up and get ready as part of that. But I want to say this about communion before we dive into it. There is a place when it comes time to take communion for contemplation and quiet repentance. Don't hear me wrongly on this. But communion is a celebratory feast. It celebrates that Christ is with us. It celebrates that Christ unites us to one another and to him. We celebrate his presence with us, which is why he gives us his body and bread. And he gives us his blood in the juice that we use here. That communion is something to celebrate. And so we will take it a little bit more in a celebratory fashion. But that's just one act of celebration that we get to do today. A second one 
is I invite you to join an evangelistic prayer as celebration. When you came in, there were cards that were on your seat. These are the cards that Jesse referenced the last couple of weeks of what we were going to do. Because what we believe here at Sierra Bible Church, what I find within Scripture is that God is still on the move. He is still saving those who have no hope without Him. And we are inviting you during the season of Advent to join in the process through celebratory prayer. If you're interested in joining with us, here's what we're asking you to do. Take one of those cards and write just the first name of somebody who you are praying will receive the hope of Jesus this year. Just the first name because one of the things that might be super cool is for us to be praying for that person and then they show up here. We don't want to necessarily be embarrassed to find out that everybody has been conspiring toward their hope. Although it might be really encouraging for them to find that out. But just go with the first name. On your way out, if you've done that, and if you're interested, we're, we're going to invite you to pin those cards on a bulletin board that's back here in the entryway. If you pin them on that entryway, don't stop praying for that person. But what that then allows us to do as a community is to look at that board and to pray for those names with you. In addition to that, right next to that wall is the men's restroom. You're giggling because a couple of you are figuring it out. There's more guy staff than girl staff here. And so every time this week when we're in the office and we got to go... When we come back out, we're walking by your names. And we get to pray with you for Jesus to show himself as the hope to this person that you were praying for. I encourage you through this season, keep praying for that person. We will join in praying with you. And collectively, we will place our hope in the God who saves. So that being said, if... Uh, if you could come help uh, those that help pass out communion, you don't have to have like special designation, but normally we've got elders or deacons or, and then if that's not enough, just, I don't know, you don't have to have graduated college or anything. Just come out. We're going to pass out the communion elements. Hold on to them while the band leads us in a song, and then we will all take together celebrating our Lord who is our hope. God, use this time for your glory to fill us with your hope. Amen.